That's the foghorn, and that must mean it's time for the Caver Ships podcast, where we try and sort out, cut through the fog and the murk, and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. Coming up, U.S. forces again are headed to Haiti to try and help in the aftermath of another devastating earthquake. We talk with a veteran of several humanitarian assistance and disaster relief missions to try and get a handle on what's involved. And with the U.S. withdrawal from most combat missions in the Middle East, what might that mean for the huge naval presence that's been maintained for over 40 years? We'll take a look. First, a quick roundup of naval news around the world. The U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, and in particular the Kabul airport, continued throughout the week. The joint operation includes Marines from the 24th Marine Expeditionary Unit deployed on the Iwo Jima Amphibious Ready Group, as well as Carrier Air Wing 5 aircraft from the USS Ronald Reagan, performing overflight missions over the airport and the vicinity of Kabul. An array of U.S. military forces are in Haiti, or headed to the earthquake-stricken nation, to provide humanitarian assistance and disaster relief. More than 2,100 people are known dead and thousands were hurt and homeless after a 7.2 magnitude earthquake hit on August 14th. The amphibious transport dock USS Arlington left Norfolk August 17th, carrying U.S. Marines, helicopters, and landing craft to help in the assessment of damage in Haiti. The fast expeditionary transport Burlington and at least seven Coast Guard cutters have been assigned to Joint Task Force Haiti, joined by a growing number of U.S. military and government agencies under the overall direction of the U.S. Agency for International Development. In the coolest story of the week, on August 18th, the decommissioned frigate Ingram was sunk in mid-Pacific by a combination of weapons as part of the Navy's large-scale exercise. A coordinated strike on the ship involved harpoon missiles launched by the submarine Chicago, joint direct attack munitions, or JDAMs, dropped by aircraft from the carrier Carl Vincent, and naval strike missiles fired by a land-based launcher embarking Sands Hawaii. Hopefully more details will emerge on this complex exercise, which appears to have coordinated multiple weapon launches from a disparate group of platforms timed to strike Ingram simultaneously. The Ingram was the last of 51 Oliver Hazard Perry class frigates built for the U.S. Navy in the 1970s and 80s. She was decommissioned in 2014 after a 25-year career. The U.S. destroyer Curtis Wilbur left Japan August 18th to return to the United States after 25 years of being forward deployed to Japan. The ship left two days after the arrival of, of the destroyers Higgins and Howard to shift from the U.S. West Coast to Japan. Curtis Wilbur, one of the oldest destroyers in the U.S. fleet, will undergo an overhaul at San Diego before returning to service. The British Royal Navy is also swapping its mine ships based at Bahrain. Brocklesby will be relieved by Middleton and Shoreham will be relieved by Bangor. Brocklesby and Shoreham left Bahrain on August 20th after completing three-year tours in the Persian Gulf. On August 20th, a TASS news agency report said a Russian defense industry source indicated the damaged aircraft carrier Admiral Kunetsov will enter a newly built floating dry dock in the summer of 2022 to complete an overhaul that began in 2017 at Murmansk. The carrier was damaged when the floating dry dock it was in sank in October 2018 as the ship was being refloated. The ship was damaged further in December 2019 by a major fire. 
Lacking another dry dock able to handle Russia's only aircraft carrier, the ship has languished, waiting for a replacement dock to be completed. And finally, China continued to press Taiwan by holding a series of live-fire naval exercises August 17th off the southwest and southeast coast of the island nation, closely watched by Taiwanese forces. Chinese media said the exercises were aimed at deterring U.S. forces from operating in the area. The U.S. Navy has maintained a roughly once-a-month routine of sending warships through the Taiwan Strait between Taiwan and the Chinese mainland. And that's a quick look at naval news around the world. So turning to our discussion, the obviously the uh, primary topic all week long has been the events in Afghanistan, not only in the Pentagon, but around the world. Other elements in the Pentagon are also focused on providing relief to Haiti, where a 7.2 magnitude earthquake struck the uh, island nation on August 14th. At least 2,000 people appear to be dead. Many more are homeless and hurt. The country is an extremist, and the United States is putting together a disaster relief humanitarian assistance mission. So far, as we said, a naval amphibious ship, the Arlington, an expeditionary ship, Coast Guard cutters, helicopters, are all on the scene or are on their way to Haiti right now. But the primary mission so far is not so much assistance, it's to assess the situation, to get a a handle on the scope of it and where the need is greatest. So one of the frustrations when when people hear of these missions is that they seem to take a very long time to really get up and running, even even though their people are on the scene, but it just it just seems to take very long time. So with us today is uh, one of our friends, a good friend, Bashan Mann, uh, former naval officer, uh, has uh, and public affairs officer, has great experience with uh, disaster relief missions going back quite some years, and he's here to kind of give us a, an idea of what what are some of the factors involved? What what happens when these major humanitarian assistance disaster relief operations take place? So Bashan, welcome. Chris, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, it, it is a pleasure to come on and, uh, and speak with you about this. I remember um, years ago in 2005 when uh, Katrina happened, uh, struck the, uh, the Gulf Coast at the end of August 2005, and the USS Iwo Jima, a very large uh, amphibious warship, was actually down doing exercises in the Gulf of Mexico. And nothing was happening. They didn't go. They didn't do anything. And then it took a while for the for days and days and days um, for the decision to be made to send the ship and even more days for it to get up and, uh, and, and more in, uh, in, in New Orleans. And it was just an immense sense of frustration. Just go, go, go. Why do these things take so long? What are the factors involved here? Chris, the, the fact that you, you begin with Katrina, I, I think we are all um, of a certain age and in, in our careers, we were able to, to, to view how that played out politically uh, across the nation. It took a little time for the, the federal government to get, uh, the federal government and, and, and FEMA, for that matter, the agency, to get spooled up. So you, we, we remember all that. To your question, why does it take so long? From my vantage point, having been on the USNS Comfort uh, when it finally got underway and, and went to New Orleans, and then also on that same ship once it, uh, once it went down to Haiti for the earthquake, earthquake response in 2010, I can tell you that, quite simply, some assets, when it comes to the military, some assets are pushed and some assets are pulled. What do I mean by that? It, it, it takes the Department of Defense... Uh, along with the, the military sealift command, 
to get those vessels underway takes time. You are trying to fill that particular ship, that particular platform with medical personnel. You are trying to, to find the right medical personnel on board. You are pulling them from our hospitals. So it takes time to get those people in place. And then we're talking about a, a platform, a ship that just doesn't move very quickly. And what's the mission? What is it that we are pulling people down there for? What is it that we are having them do? I will give you one quick aside. Once we found ourselves down uh, in New Orleans, we, that our ship pulled right up there into the Ninth Ward, uh, we actually had medical doctors, leadership from the LSU hospital come aboard and actually ask us to leave. Um, they said the, if the city was going to get itself back up on its feet, it needed to take care of patients in its own, uh, in its own facilities. And the fact that uh, the comfort was there to provide free medical assistance was actually uh, a hindrance to them getting back on their feet. Uh, I couldn't believe it when I heard it, uh, but this is just, I say that just to give you an insight uh, as to some of the, the political elements uh, behind all of that. It's not just, hey, turn the, you know, turn the ship on, get it down there and start helping people. There, there, is, there is much more to consider. There is much more to think about in, in terms of executing that mission. It opened up my eyes more to, you know, it's not just that you wanted to revolve around that humanitarian aid in disaster relief. Uh, you know, sailors, we, we wake up to execute a job, right? To, to do a job, to be of assistance. We were there uh, helping fellow Americans move through a, a really traumatic time. Uh, but when you sort of, you kind of peel back the curtain, you see that there is so much more at work, so much more going on uh, than just saving lives or helping people get, get back up to their, to their lives, really. Ash, well, thanks for joining us. Um, let, let's shift gears just for a second sure. to Haiti in 2010. Um, again, if I remember, um, you, you know, kind of to juxtapose what happened in 2010 with what what's happening now, there was a, you know, a surge of um, Department of State, some military, um, some NGO to go down to kind of do the uh, assessment work that appears to be happening now. And then the military came in um, in big numbers as part of that effort, that was a, a different time. That was in the winter. This is in the, uh, obviously in the, in the summertime. So you have a, a duty amphib uh, in, in Arlington that's loaded with supplies, um, you know, to be ready for whatever hurricane ops. But what are the things that are happening in these first couple of days that, you know, Rear Admiral Keith Davids um, from uh, Sox South and his staff, what, what are they working through um, before they can make the decision to bring in other assets? Uh, Chris, uh, great question there. I, I would say there, there's the assessment of what's happening on the ground. Uh, what sort of, and I can speak to this from, you know, being on that hospital ship, there was uh, how many orthopedic doctors uh, do we have available to come down? Because, you know, here was this earthquake. We know that the infrastructure in Haiti um, may, may not be, uh, it's, perhaps substandard, not what we are familiar with here in the United States. So you had a lot of crush injuries. How many, um, uh, how many docs, how many nurses, how many, how many corpsmen are we going to need to address uh, the amount of patients that we possibly uh, can take on board? What is going to be in working with those NGOs uh, on the ground, USAID? Uh, who has the authority 
uh, in order to say a patient can can be brought out to the ship. So, uh, and then what are the transportation uh, assets available to you um, that that you can bring back and forth? So there there are certainly the, the, these sort of critical elements uh, when you ask that question. Your lead, you know leadership uh, on the ground needs to needs to ascertain um, how many how many bodies do we need uh, to send in order to in order to execute that and and are we going to be able uh to actually be of assistance once we got down there what what we found uh when we went down to haiti in 2010 once we did arrive on scene uh you know we we were in a sense overwhelmed because you you couldn't have enough orthopedic docs with the amount of crush injuries that we were facing and then uh there was the matter of it's not like someone had a driver's license or an ID card to actually just show to you uh, when they got on board. So you had uh, mothers and fathers. You have to remember, this is something, an earthquake that occurred uh, roughly about 5 p.m. in the afternoon uh, on, on that day in January. Uh, it was January 12, 2010, I believe. So people were, you know, people were leaving their jobs. Kids were leaving school. You had parents that would just drop off their children uh, in a, at a drop zone area. So we were getting so many baby, uh, baby Jane and baby John Doe's uh, without having any sort of understanding of uh, who, you know, who are their parents, who are their guardians. Uh, that was another thing that we had to sift through. And that might be something that's perhaps lower down on the priority list, uh, but again, something that you need to think about. And so to your, you know, to your question, the, the leadership on the ground there needs to basically ask themselves that question, what are we capable of? What is it that we are trying to do? We see they have a need here. Uh, they, you know, their hospitals are not functioning. Uh, you know, USAID needs assistance uh, in their medical, um, uh, their their medical uh, treatment of of uh, Haitian uh, Haitian people. Where are we going to be the most help? Um, and and then and then even as you go a little bit beyond that, communicating the message of what you're doing. Um, you know, that, that we are all, we're professional communicators, uh, all of us here telling that story so that people understand why are we sending these assets here in the first place? Why are we uh, spending taxpayer dollars uh, trying to be of assistance? Well, we're doing that because of X, Y, and Z. Uh, and that's why this is important. So, so even then telling the message uh, is extremely important. Ash, do you think there's a reluctance in the, in the, in the military to take the advice of non-military um, organizations, NGOs, non-government organizations, relief agencies of all kinds. I mean, there, there are already plenty of people on the ground in Haiti, plenty of, of groups already there with, within hours trying to provide assistance. They're well aware of where a lot of the real need is. I don't. I mean, does, does the Navy really need, does, does Southcom really need to do a full reconnoiter of, of the area to, to learn all this? Well, Chris, I, I will give you two sides to that. There is what we feel is right. What is the right way of going about uh, executing uh, a humanitarian aid and disaster relief mission? Uh, we, you know, we are, we are trained uh, to, to, to do it this way, you know, step, step one, step two, step three. Um, the fact that we would have to work alongside NGOs or take direction from NGOs can certainly present a challenge. Uh, but I, I think what, from what I've seen in my experience, 
an effective leader is someone who will step up to the plate, listen to what, uh, what it is they need, you know, if they're already on the ground there, and then how we can be of further value uh, to the situation. We, we can, you know, uh, we can complement what you all are doing uh, in this fashion here. We can be a little bit more robust. Um, does it always work out that way? Unfortunately, no. Uh, just because uh, our missions are not always necessarily um, uniquely aligned. Uh, but I, at the end of the day, I'd like to think that it's because uh, we want to be as helpful as possible. Well, we do, but it seems like sometimes we just kind of get in our own way just to, 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 to make it happen as fast as possible. Well, <laughs> yeah, yes. And that's, you know, we have this desire, this inherent desire to, you know, want to be everywhere at any time. And that's not, we're finding that out now that that's not realistic um, in, in terms of, you know, the, the, the sheer numbers that we can throw uh, at a particular mission, whether it be in, in wartime or, or in something that is a disaster relief mission. Um, you, you just, you, you can only use uh what you have available right um and, well, arlington, and, and arlington was available they were actually out doing a large-scale exercise but they are actually also out with a bigger ship uh kearsarge uh doing the same thing and you know uh, i mean arlington is a very capable ship no question about it and all the, these 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 san antonio class lpds are a far cry from the old old lpds but but I will say, Chris, it, we have to we have to be very clear about what is it that that ship is being asked to do. What are what is the ship's company being asked to do? Uh, when I go back to the tsunami in Indonesia in Banda Aceh uh, in 2004, you could have put two, three, four, four hospital ships off that coast, and it would never have been enough right. for the amount of damage that was done. Is anyone asking what the country, what the people really needs? And then, and then how can we be effective to address that need? Um, I, I mean, when I was down in Haiti, uh, gosh, I, I saw you had CBs on the ground. You had Marines on the ground, uh, the State Department, NGOs. You had that hospital ship sitting out there. Um, I, I can remember, I'm going to blank on whatever aircraft carrier was there. But the aircraft carrier that was there didn't have the capacity because uh, Sanjay Gupta with CNN, when I, that was something that was uh, highly uh, popularized, um, populated rather that, oh, Sanjay Gupta is performing brain surgery aboard this, um, ab aboard this aircraft carrier. But the aircraft carrier didn't have the, uh, it, it didn't have the capacity to, to do what needed to, to really be done. Um, and so that, that patient was actually transported um, over to the, to the comfort. So, you know, I think sometimes, you know, we, we, things get done because it looks good or feels good, but are we being effective? And that question, people need to spend the, the appropriate amount of time asking that question. Is, is this the right uh, asset uh, to be, um, to be sent here? That's, and I go back to some assets being pushed versus assets being pulled. Uh, and, and that question doesn't get asked enough. No, it doesn't. But, you know, we do. The amphibious ships are some of the finest platforms around for humanitarian assistance, disaster relief. They have 
immense capacity, can have, have a lot of people. They have their own medical facilities. They carry lots of helicopters, lots of landing craft that can that don't need ports to, to move things around. They're very effective and and in this kind of situation, they certainly can carry that kind of gear that is is what's needed right away. Not just it's not just medical assistance. Um, Bash, this has been great. We really appreciate you coming on. Uh, you've got a wealth of experience here, and thank you very much for just letting us giving us some insight into, into what's involved. Chris, it's a pleasure. Um, I you know definitely proud of, uh, of of the time I spent um, on board those ships. And, and my hope is that uh, the, the leadership and the folks on the ground and our folks in uniform uh, can be effective and can be helpful. Uh, so I wish them well. Likewise. Thanks, Bash. You got it. Thanks again, Bashan. Uh, Chris, in the time that we have left, um, with all of the images coming out of Afghanistan uh, over the last week, have you given any thought to what the Navy's footprint in Fifth Fleet looks like. I mean, and and if that will, if our movement out of Afghanistan will affect that footprint, do we continue to stay hyper focused on the Iranians? Um, do we continue to you know worry about the Red Sea? Does anything change? Does anything stay the same? What what thoughts do you have? It's a good question, and you know we have been focused on that part of the world for more than forty years in terms of just about every carrier strike group, every amphibious ready group has gone out to central command uh, to operate in the Arabian Sea, in the Persian Gulf, in the Red Sea, in the Indian Ocean, and conduct a variety of missions out there over the years. So with our withdrawal from Iraq, with our withdrawal now from Afghanistan, when this the evacuation is over, um, what will the need be for that? Should that continue on that scale? And obviously that's been a driving factor for ships are deployed and overextended. We can't do enough maintenance on ships. We can't keep up this drumbeat. Um, what happens to that? And there will undoubtedly be those who would like to draw that, draw down that mission, uh, pull back, get, get, get something more manageable, uh, go back to going to Europe, the Mediterranean, the North Sea, in that region and the Western Pacific, where, where China obviously is the major concern. So my sense is that while a lot of people will want to do this, in the end, we, we, may, we may draw down the major formations that go there, but I doubt we'll draw down the presence for several reasons. One is that a lot of things are still going on. There's still piracy. Um, there's still um, the, the uh, civil war in Yemen. The Iraq, Iran is uh, perpetually trying to come up with some problem, uh, create issues for people. We have a role in the Persian Gulf with the Gulf Cooperation Council, where we are viewed, I've talked to quite a number of people out there, not Americans, that uh, we're, we're, we're viewed as, an, as a relatively honest broker, where those, those nations can often talk through us at each other. Um, that's, a, that's a quite an important role. Obviously, we don't know the future for countries like Pakistan, but I think the, the big driving factor is, is the Chinese. You know, the, the Americans, the, the, this, this used to be an area where the British were paramount uh, from the 19th century into the mid uh, 20th century. And after the withdrawal from Suez, you know, east of Suez uh, that, that the, the British carried out in the mid 60s, 
there was something of a power vacuum. We'd had a, we'd had a small force there, really just a, these small seaplane tenders that were that were the Middle East Task Force flagship, the one ship fleet, um, would go around and just conduct uh, port visits all year long. Um, eventually, with the British pulling out, we began to build up our presence. We we put in a larger flagship, the LaSalle, a converted amphibious ship. Um, in 1983, after the uh, after the hostage crisis, um, and the the Iraq Iran War had begun, uh, we established Central Command and its component Naval Naval Central Command. Um, eventually, the Fifth Fleet was formed in this century. But since since the the hostage crisis of '79, when we had these very long carrier deployments, the Nimitz and the Eisenhower. And then the uh, the prov prov provocations from Iran, and we were supporting Iraq during the eight-year-long tanker war. Um, we've just maintained a far larger presence than we ever had before, and at the expense of the missions in Europe and in the in the Western Pacific. But just like if, you know, if, if we withdraw, then it becomes something similar to when the British withdrew. There was a power vacuum. We moved in to fill it. If we withdraw, logic would tell you that the Chinese, especially, and the Russians to, to a lesser extent, are going to want to move in. The Chinese already have a base in Djibouti. They've already, for almost 11 years now, been doing maintained a continuous routine of three-ship deployments to the region, uh, ostensibly on counter-piracy duties. So they have, uh, they, they're already there. They already have a presence, not unlike our presence in the, in the mid-60s when the, when the uh, British pulled out. I think if, if we left and drew down um, that, uh, the, you know, if there's a vacuum, someone's going to fill it and the Chinese are going to come right in. So I think that would, that would mitigate a major withdrawal from the area. Yeah, I think you're right. I think tactically um, with Afghanistan winding down, the mission changes, um, you know, somewhat, but I think strategically, uh, your, your point about uh, China, about Russia, about Iran, I, I think that is going to keep us there. It'll be interesting to see how uh, the appetite of the COCOM changes uh, in terms of, you, right. you know, if, if the drawdown in Afghanistan actually does allow us to really focus on the Pacific and this whole idea of great power competition. And if um, the types of things that CENTCOM and Fifth Fleet asked for, if that changes over time, or if it's, you know, this kind of constant food fight for high-end capability to keep the Iranians and, and others at, at bay. So we'll have to keep an eye on it. And, um, you, you know, I think the next couple months will, uh, uh, will, will certainly be indicators of maybe where this administration uh, hopes to take it. I think you're right. Okay, so. Now hear this. <laughs> now hear this. Yes. Now hear this. It is time for Squawk Box. And this week, Mr. Cervello comments on the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Chris, for many Americans, especially those in the veteran community, this week's Afghanistan policy actions, the press briefings, and Saigon-like images from Kabul have been hard to stomach. It's difficult to watch our great country stumble and have to come to grips with the geopolitical, military, and social realities of the last two decades in Afghanistan. It's also hard to imagine what 9-11 remembrance ceremonies will look and feel like given the events of the last week. 
suddenly parades, speeches, and football games seem much less consequential, assuming they ever were. I'm not a boots on the ground veteran of the war in Afghanistan. The closest I came was shooting airplanes off the deck of the Theodore Roosevelt in 01 and 02 and touring the green zone or well-protected forward operating bases with flag officers as they visited sailors in Afghanistan. So the emotion I feel about the last 20 years is different than someone who fought in country. And while emotions are raw, it's probably not of much value to draw sweeping conclusions on what our exit says about the service of those who fought or what it means to our standing in the world. There'll be plenty of time for that. And the reality is we didn't achieve all of our objectives and we are leaving in less than an ideal fashion. So some sort of regret or disappointment may indeed be warranted. Arguing to the contrary seems ham-fisted and out of touch at this point in time. That said, as leaders, as navalists, as Americans, we do need to take a hard look at the last 20 years and figure out what we did right what we did wrong, where we made stupid decisions and poor investments to ensure we are better prepared for the faster, more dangerous, and likely more consequential chapters that lie immediately ahead. All right. Well, well said, Chris. And that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Moradian for his support, as well as to the Fincantieri Marine Group and Huntington Ingalls Industries for their continued support of the defense and aerospace effort. Be sure to follow us at Cavus Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye.